3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past, present and past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 20th of May and the clock has just ticked over to 7.04. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Rosie. Morning. Good morning. <laughs> How's everyone going this morning? Pretty good. It was weird driving in today and there being absolutely no sun and just seeing like the backdrop of the city <laughs> and like completely dark. But other than that, it was great. <laughs> yeah, it gets so dark, but luckily it wasn't too cold as yeah, the bike ride this morning. It was I felt really okay. warm, but, but cold. I mean, dark. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, so we've got a packed show, so I'm pretty keen to get started this morning. Should we go through the rundown? Let's do it. So, first up, um, earlier this week, Priya caught up with Nura Mansour, a Palestinian educator, political analyst, community organiser and campaigner from ACCA. Nura discussed Israeli apartheid and genocidal violence against Palestinians, Palestinian anti-colonial resistance and solidarity with Palestine. Then at 7.30, we're going to get Matt Kunkel on the line, who is the director of Migrant Workers Centre. And he's going to join us to speak about their campaign to assist workers on temporary visas who are erroneously approved JobKeeper, who are now being asked to return that JobKeeper money to the ATO. Then we're going to get Amy and Karen on the line, who are both activists who are involved in the Homes Not Prisons campaign, and they're going to join us to speak about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. And then Sione Crawford, CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, will join us to speak about the importance importance of supervised safe injecting facilities in Melbourne and countering conservative pushback against these new sites. And finally, um, we'll have Samira Farah in the studio with us, who's an art producer and radio presenter. She's the co-founder of Melbourne-based Black African Arts Collective Still Nomads, and she's currently the host of The Score on Triple R, and she'll be joining us to discuss a new exhibition that's opened at West Space called 13 Years. All right, and shall we go through a few headlines? So... The Morrison government um, has recently confirmed that it will spend up to $600 million building a new gas-fired power station in Kurikuri in the New South Wales Hunter Valley. The government says its Hunter Power project will create 600 jobs in the region at the peak of its construction phase. Um, And the project is hoping to deliver flexible gas generation to replace Little, um, which is a current... uh, power station based in New South Wales and maintain reliable power alongside Australia's world-leading investment in renewables. And this announcement comes after an announcement from a few weeks ago where um, the New South Wales government has paid out Shenhua um, to axe that coal mine. 
Yeah, and then um, so there's been development in terms of this um, proposal to build a cable car on Kunanyi or Mount Wellington in Hobart. So um, there's been a proposal to build this cable car for many years um, and there was talk that it could be voted on as early as July, but there is resistance from the Aboriginal community in Hobart as well as other residents um, and it has divided the community for many years. So... um, Aboriginal community are saying they will fight this and that this is a sacred site and um, they're not they're not um, going to allow this cable car um, to go ahead. But the company has, you know, talked about having done um, their their due diligence, doing all the planning that they need to do, um, making sure that it's environmentally safe. But as we know, that isn't really what we're looking for in these cases. Um, we've also um heard a bit more about the uptake of the COVID vaccine um, across Victoria um, while New South Wales ramps up their rollout of the COVID vaccine. So there's been reports by a nurse who said that during an eight-hour shift at one of the Victorian mass vaccination hubs, um, she only did administered one vaccine and she was kind of worrying that this might be due to um, the centre being hard to see, um, poorly advertised, fears around the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as complacency of the Australian community towards vaccine due to low COVID cases. And that's all we've got time for for headlines. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. I'm speaking with Nora Mansour, a Palestinian educator, political analyst, community organizer and campaigner from Akka, about Israeli apartheid and genocidal violence against Palestinians, as well as Palestinian resistance and anti-colonial struggle and the movement for solidarity with Palestine. So, Nora, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thanks for having me, Priya. No worries. So um, I guess we'll just jump straight into it. I know this is really heavy. It's a really difficult time. And there have been strikes on suburbs and refugee camps in Gaza, Israeli defense force attacks on Palestinians, as well as, um, and I think this has been less emphasized, vigilante violence and property destruction by Israeli settlers Uh, which combined have now tragically taken over 230 Palestinian lives. And um, I was wondering if we could start by discussing uh, Israel's choice to to target specific sites. So, for example, uh, media uh, buildings, clinics, public infrastructure, roads to hospitals. There was a bookshop and publishing house and even the desecration of a cemetery. So obviously this is uh, attacking civilians, but also attacking some key sites as well. Yeah, that's that's a great um, um, way or point to start with. I think um, because so basically what 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 is happening and what has been happening for the last 73 years is that Israel does not only target the land; it targets the Palestinian society as a whole. So it targets the Palestinian people, and it is a war against the Palestinian indigenous population in Palestine at its core. Um, and this, we, uh, you know, this can be uh, seen um, as, as it's been evident uh, throughout Israeli practices and policies. But most recently, as we can see, that it's targeting civilian population um, in Gaza, and that is something also that is not new. We can see 
uh, from statistics from 2014 as well that, you know, 80%, according to United Nations, 80% of, of the victims, um, you know, in 2014 were actually civilians and vast majority of children as well. So at its core, Israel targets civilian population. It targets civilian infrastructure. And specifically when we're talking about a context where you have two, uh, two million people living uh, under uh, siege for so long, it's really hard to make that distinction. There's almost no distinction, um, you know, uh, and we can argue that no place is safe in Gaza, not even the civilian infrastructure, right? So as you mentioned, um, book, bookstores have been uh, targeted, uh, office buildings, including journalists like Al Jazeera, uh, houses, obviously, cemeteries. And in 2014, we've also seen hospitals being targeted, um, uh, mosques, um, and, you know, as we've seen now, also United Nations schools. So now they're threatening to attack United Nations schools. And, and basically, yeah. So as I said, to begin with, Israel's war at its core is a war against civilian, you know, stateless population in Palestine. Yeah, it seems to very much be, um, you know, this wholesale targeting of the, the Palestinian population, it's hitting these cultural sites as well as sites of education, sites of medical care. Um, but in response to that, obviously, Palestinian people have been resisting. They've been resisting for decades. And there was a historic all-Palestine strike on May 18th. So could you speak to the significance of that strike and, and what happened? Sure. So the strike, um, the Tuesday strike, the 18th of May, uh, was initiated basically by grassroots organizations in, across the historical Palestine. So that is 1948, West Bank and, and you know, Gaza for as much as possible, uh, territories. And, um, so mainly the goal of this strike, uh, we can probably talk about three main points. Uh, and the first one is to unite the Palestinian people under one common strategy in fighting and resisting Israeli apartheid uh, policies and practices that are uh, obviously have been um, very aggressive towards Palestinians for almost over a century, if you know, uh, were to go back to the root cause of the violence that is in Palestine, which is the Zionist movement. Um, so that is the first goal, which is to unite all Palestinians under one strategy. So the second goal is to demonstrate that Palestinians, even though um, they are at disadvantage when it comes to the power, um, power asymmetry and power imbalance, because obviously this is a, um, an interaction or um, uh, warfare between state versus non-state actors, stateless people. Um, even though we are the stateless, uh, the weak quote unquote part, but we do have significant impact and we can actually affect and change the rules of the game. Uh, and that is uh, one way to do it is through the strike. Uh, the third and obviously the clear objective of the strike was to try and put pressure on Israeli economy so that it affects all the other. It's like an all encompassing um, strategy to affect other sectors so that in a way to alleviate pressure from Gaza or to, you know, share, share the burden, uh, if you wish. So that that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And I mean, it's been amazing seeing those pictures come out of Palestine, um, seeing, you know, everybody on the streets and the amount of um, mobilization, um, but also sites of joy, music, dancing, you know, people 
um, really getting together and holding each other during this time. And there's also been um, an uptick as well as we've seen in public solidarity and the tide may be starting to turn a little on the narrative war um, with this sort of importance of people starting to recognize a framing of apartheid, which was mentioned in the Human Rights Watch report in April, but also um, some discussion um, being lifted up about this being an anti-colonial struggle. Um, so, yeah, could, could you speak to, to some of the change in discourse, you know, acknowledging that there is still a lot of um, uh, sway held by uh, the Israeli state over public discourse? Sure. So I think the reason why this is really important is the fact that the current framing leaves out a big, uh, um, like a big proportion of what is happening or what has been happening. So factually, it's basically incorrect. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't provide, um, um, the bigger picture for people to think, uh, as in, you know, to have, uh, the proper understanding of what is going on there. And that is why you, you still have people today who are confused and people say, oh, but it's very complicated. Isn't it complicated? I'm like, not if you look um, at it from the right lens and the right framework, right? If we were to go back once again to the root cause, it is by the end of the day, it is a settler colonial project, right? It's a Zionist settler colonial project and it's a, um, um, a war against indigenous population in Palestine. Um, so I think, yes, the tide is shifting. And, and that is something that, you know, many Palestine organization, advocacy organizations and Palestinians and individuals uh, have been working really hard to get to that point. Um, we are still facing challenges and limitation, and there's still some caveats when it comes to mainstream media, but that has been also uh, balanced with uh, social media um, to a certain extent, because even social media has been censoring Palestinian content. So that is, again, um, uh, as we can see, this is a, a struggle that we're facing on man, money, money front. But um, it's really hard at this point, you know, when people have free access to information to keep information from people. Uh, people, can, people can watch and see what's happening nowadays. It's not, it's not like it's, uh, we're in still, you know, when things were happening in 1948. So people have access to information and they can make their own conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it, it has been a bit frustrating seeing um, greater amplification of what's happening after the Al Jazeera and associated press offices were hit, um, rather than looking at it before when it was just hitting Palestinian civilians. But at the same time, that has also, um, you know, allowed some amplification as well. Um, but then at the same time, you see um, the state literally posting through this on social media. <laughs> you see uh, Twitter, um, the, the state, the IDF accounts that are, that are posting through this, which is quite extraordinary. Um, but I also wanted to turn to um, the, the importance of Jewish-Palestinian solidarity, and that is not to say that there aren't Palestinians who are themselves Jewish, um, but there's a letter, for example, circulating at the moment uh, within so-called Australia where um, – Jewish people who are standing in, in solidarity with Palestine are signing on. And I wanted to talk to the importance of sort of debunking uh, this false equivalence between uh, anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and also unwanted instances of anti-Semitic actions that are claiming to be pro-Palestinian. Yes, no, this is, this is a very important point uh, for me personally as a Palestinian who grew up in Palestine. 
but also um, I think for the wider community as well. Um, so look, the way that Israel is structured uh, and the Zionist movement is built is that it wants people to think that being Jewish means being Zionist, right? So it wants to conflate these two identities and create a false sense of um, uh, that they're inseparable, yeah? Uh, however, if we were to look, you know, <laughs> once again at fact, we would see that historically the Jewish um, Judaism is, you know, a thousand years old uh, culture. And, um, of course, there, it has a historical link to Palestine um, and uh, by itself is not necessarily tied to a geographical location in the sense that you can be Jewish anywhere in the world and you can still practice Judaism because it's a spiritual um, identity as a religion, whereas Zionism, on the other hand, it is a political movement, right? And it's only a hundred uh, plus years old. So we don't want to be reducing when we're talking like the conflation basically reduces the Ju Ju Jewish or um, Jewish culture from this ancient culture to this, you know, small and limited political movement that is mainly a settler colonial movement, right? That again. Um, uh, Thought to establish a homeland for people based on lies, because the Zionist uh, myth was that uh, um, Palestine is an empty land for people with, you know, with no land or something like this. So, um, and this is this is again, it's very um, settler colonial textbook argument that that is also was also made here in Australia with the Terra Nullius. Um, so I think it's important not to conflate these two. Um, it's also um, the other reason why we should not be conflating because many Jewish people uh, are not Zionists, but also many Zionists are not Jewish. So you can be Zionist and not be a Jewish person, for instance, like the evangelicals, uh, Christians, or, you know, some of the, the Arab and Muslim leaders who are um, normalizing relations with Israel. So they endorse Zionism in this case. Um, but... Uh, the other important point that I want to make is that anti-Semitism is real and it exists. Um, however, it does not exist in the framework that Zionism wants you to think. It exists in a framework where it is linked to Islamophobia, anti-immigrants, and it's a fight, again, um, um, against um, um, right-wing, extreme right-wing movements. So it's important that, um, you know, as a Palestinian, when... I'm fighting against racist and discriminatory systems. I'm also fighting um, um, against anti-Semitism. Uh, if I'm not doing that, then there's something wrong uh, with my uh, values, obviously. Yeah, no, that is um, a really important topic to amplify because I think, you know, this sort of reductionist kind of language uh, really erases the importance of seeing these struggles as interconnected, as you said. Um, so finally, um, would you be able to tell listeners a bit about the rally that's coming up on the 22nd of May and any other solidarity actions people can participate in? Yeah, so currently there are many solidarity actions and activities that are happening across Australia, and you can follow certain organizations, for instance, like uh, the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, like APAN, the BDS Australia, um, uh, Free Palestine Melbourne, for instance, all of these grassroots movements 
uh, sorry, grassroots uh, organizations, civil society organizations are basically uh, leading um, multiple campaigns in that um, aspect. Uh, but specifically on Saturday 22nd at 1 p.m. State Library, there's going to be a massive protest for the second uh, weekend um, in support of the Palestinian people and their ongoing struggle against um, uh, apartheid and settler colonialism. Um, that is Israel, obviously. So we'd love to see everyone there. Awesome. Yeah, strongly encourage people to get out there. We'll be out there Thursday breakfast crew. So um, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me, Nara. Great. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Priya. And we'll see you on Saturday. And just then, we heard a conversation that Priya had with Nura Mansour, a Palestinian educator, political analyst, community organizer, and campaigner from Aqqa. Nura discussed Israeli apartheid and genocidal violence against Palestinians, Palestinian anti-colonial resistance, and solidarity with Palestine. And she did mention there the Nakba rally, 73 years of Israeli colonization must end, which is the rally that's happening on the 22nd of May this Saturday at 1pm at the State Library. And also check out Free Palestine Melbourne on Facebook, where they had a Nakba forum last night. So it's titled Nakba Forum, Supporting and Returning to Palestine Liberated. And also check out the Boycott, Divest, Sanction Australia movement. And now we're going to play a song. This one is a new one from Debor. This is Sheikh Jarrah.
Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shonatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic Mazika. Join us to protest the forced evictions and ethnic cleansing in Palestine this Saturday, May 22nd at 1pm outside the State Library. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your masks and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And that track that we played just before was Sheikh Jarrah by DeBoer. And now Matt Kunkel, Director of Migrant Workers Centre, joins us to speak about their campaign to assist workers on temporary visas who were erroneously approved JobKeeper, who are now being asked to return that money to the ATO. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Thanks and good morning, everybody. So can you first start off by telling us a little bit about what the Migrant Workers Centre does? Yeah, sure. The Migrant Workers Centre was set up in 2018 as a uh, centre to educate migrant workers about their rights and to organise collectively with them to defend and extend those workplace rights. Great. Um, and can you talk a little bit more now about this campaign um, to assist workers on temporary visas who were erroneously approved at JobKeeper last year, who are now being asked to, unfortunately, return that money to the Australian Tax Office? How did this campaign start? Yeah, well, it started, I guess, all the way back at the very beginning of the pandemic when the government made the decision to exclude migrant workers from any type of social safety net Um and, you know, specifically carved them out of JobKeeper so that only citizens and permanent residents received it. Um, and, you know, just like the rest of us, people who were on temporary visas had a real, tr- had real trouble during the pandemic. Um, and in this case, um, someone who now works for us at the, at the centre um, I guess a guy called Hassan was driving uh, for Uber mm-hmm. and went to see his tax agent and his tax agent gave him the advice that he would get JobKeeper if he applied for it. So following the advice of the um, following the advice of the tax agent, he's gone ahead and applied for JobKeeper. The government 
Lookdale or DATL has looked at his application and said, yep, no problem, knowing that he's on a visa that under their rules wouldn't have been eligible for it and started to pay him um, that job deeper. And then at the end, when it all wraps up, he gets a, he gets a letter from the ATO saying that he owes tens of thousands of dollars in back paid job tips because they've made a mistake in paying it to him in the first place. Mm, so, yeah, and that was nine months free. later <laughs> after he yeah. received that letter um, from the Australian yeah. Tax Office saying that he wasn't eligible for JobKeeper. Yeah, that's right, and it's real shades of robo-debt here because um, it's not like, I mean, Hassan did everything right. You know, he went and he got advice. He didn't know. Um, he got the advice and then he sent it through. And then he faced tens of thousands of dollars in debt, but he's been able to successfully challenge that debt. And indeed, now we um, have been working with other folks who are in the same situation to um, challenge JobKeeper debts. Um, and I'm looking to do that even more uh, and kind of expand that um, out and help other people that are in that situation, um, I guess, um, not end up in the same situation that many people um, did during the robo-debt crisis where they were, you know, I guess terrorised by the government um, over what are, you know, quite significant sums of money and life-changing sums of money for people who, who really needed it last year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, now um, we're hearing stories as well of businesses keeping that JobKeeper money, um, but I don't see a lot of, um, you know, news articles about the government trying to recover money from those businesses. So I oh. think that the government is really trying to target uh, marginalised individuals in this case. Yeah, that's that's like that's absolutely right on, isn't it? I mean, these big businesses pocketed millions and millions of dollars um, only to record, you know, big profits during the um, big profits during the pandemic, and it's it's just pretty typical of this federal government to to go after the um, to go after the little guy, I guess. Um, return a phrase for this kind of money, and you know, people who were deliberately excluded um, and made to feel like they should just pack up and, and go home last year, which was a, a shocking response in the first instance, but to now harass them and, and try and take back um, this money um, just for, makes it harder for them to bounce back after the, you know, the lockdowns we had last year. It's a real, I mean, it's a real um, shame on the government, to be honest. Mm, absolutely. And, um, I mean, under the legislation, a person um, only qualified for JobKeeper if they were a resident of Australia under the Social Security Act or a resident for tax purposes and the holder of a special category visa. So whilst I understand that um, a lot of temporary visa holders did erroneously apply and then the government erroneously ex um, accepted and approved those um, applications for JobKeeper, I think there is a real indictment on the system that... Um, um, a lot of migrants last year couldn't apply for social security welfare. So I just wanted to raise that as well. Yeah, that's right. And particularly, I mean, the thing that makes this so egregious in my view is that the JobKeeper program was like underspent by billions and billions of dollars. People might remember halfway through, there was a lot of news articles about how, you know, it hadn't been as well subscribed as everybody thought and there was all this extra money in the bucket. Um now what we see is this recovery 
happening because the tax office made a mistake. Mm. Because the tax office didn't apply its own rules properly uh, and then paid money to workers that needed this money to make um, to make ends meet. Now they're coming at the back end and taking it away. It's just it's it's really shocking. But the real the real kind of shame in this is the fact that they were excluded in the very first place because yeah. just like all of us, they they need to you know provide for their families. And the pandemic affected all of us equally. It didn't. It didn't care. It didn't discriminate against the colour of your skin or what visa you were from. We're all in this together, supposedly. And um, you know, it's clear again through the actions of the ATO that that's really not the case when it comes to um, comes to this. Yeah. So, how can listeners find out a bit more about the campaign, especially those listeners who were on temporary visas um, last year and were approved JobKeeper, and now the ATO is asking for money back? Yeah, sure. So, I think the best way would be to head over to um, Facebook and get to our website. So, if you just type in Migrant Worker Centre, uh, we should be the first thing that, that pops up with a big kind of orange cog globe logo uh, one a couple of migrant worker centres, but um, if you look us up on Facebook, there's a post, um, click through, there's a quick survey that kind of gets some um, quick details about your case so that we can kind of um, assign you to somebody, hopefully someone that can speak your language if you're um, not too comfortable with English as well, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll step through that. And then in the meantime, for those that are more interested in getting involved, in a wider campaign against the tax office for this, um, you can head over to the website and um, sign up and keep, keep following us for the details. Great. That sounds like a class action ready to happen. Um, what other work does Migrant Workers Centre take part in? Um, more broadly, what we do is um, workers come to us when they have issues at work. Um, so if there's any people out there born overseas, working in Australia, who have had an issue with their boss, they can give us a call, make an appointment, speak with an organiser, and you know, we can help um, give them some advice and identify whether there's an opportunity to organise in their workplace to, to fight for better rights or indeed just to get back their money. We've recovered alongside, alongside workers, we've recovered over $1.2 million in stolen wages and other entitlements. Um, so if there's anyone out there that thinks they're not being paid correctly, um, they can give us a buzz and, and we can talk them through that. But we also provide opportunities um, for folks to come along and hear about their workplace rights um, so that they understand, um, you know, things about super minimum wages, discrimination in the workplace. Um, I guess forewarned is um, forearmed. Great. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us this morning to speak about this um, issue. It's just terrible, and I hope that people really do reach out to Migrant Workers Centre if you were um, approved JobKeeper, but now the ATO is looking to um, try and get back that money from you. So, yeah, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us, and I'll just ask that you stay on the line um, whilst we go to a community service announcement. No problem. Thanks for having me. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel 
at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast and now we're going to head into a new track from Maisha. This one is Damaged.
So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And now on the line we have Amy and Karen, who are both activists involved in the Homes Not Prisons campaign, and they're joining us to speak about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. Welcome, Amy, and welcome, Karen. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So, Amy, I might head to you first. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you into the Homes Not Prisons campaign? Um, yeah, well, I have lived experience of being um, imprisoned at Dame Phyllis Frost, um, and that has sort of yeah, got me involved with opposing the expansion of it. And Karen? Yeah, I'm um, a lawyer who works in prison advocacy at Fitzroy Legal Service, and I'm also on the board of Flat Out, which is a support agency for women, trans and non-binary folk coming out of prison or at risk of going to prison. And we specialise in um, supporting people to get housing and other supports after prison or to keep them out of prison. Great. Thank you both for those introductions. So um, I'll just set the scene a bit. So on the 19th of March this year, 
the Victorian government announced the construction of 106 new cells at Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. Um, so that's a maximum security prison for women in Ravenhall in Melbourne's west. And that's going to be costing the government $188.9 million. Um, that expansion also includes two new 20-bed uh, bed management units. So those are essentially solitary confinement units. Um, and, yeah, Karen, can you first off start by speaking about the Homes Not Prisons campaign and what the main goals are and objectives? Yeah, so the Homes Not Prisons campaign or coalition has been initiated by Flat Out, as I said, which is a support agency for women, trans and non-binary folk coming out of prison or at risk of going to prison, um, supporting them and their kids to keep out of prison. Uh, and we've uh, initiated this coalition really as a line in the sand uh, against prison expansion. So this announcement by the uh, Andrews government in March that they're building 106 new beds at Dame Phyllis Frost, uh, which is the maximum security prison for women in Melbourne, um, is part of a huge prison expansion that uh, has been going for a few years, $1.8 billion dollars in the 2019 budget, Victorian budget for um, expansion of prisons. This is the Dame Phyllis Frost expansion is a part of that. And in the media in recent days, we've learned that there is a, a plan for spending even more um, on more prisons. So we're right in the middle of a huge prison expansion in Victoria. And, yeah, this campaign is, uh, is specifically against the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost um, because of the issue, because women are the fastest growing uh, proportion of people who are imprisoned in Victoria and of those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, in Victoria, like in the rest of Australia, is the fastest growing segment of the prison population. Mm. Uh, so the expansion of women's prisons has a particular um, importance because this is where there is the most growth in the use of prisons. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, the campaign is about bringing together uh, a coalition of organisations and individuals, um, particularly uh, particularly centering the voices of people who have experienced imprisonment and of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which those communities are the most affected communities, um, to put a line in the sand and say to the Andrews government, do not extend this prison. Uh, we've all been, all the agencies that are involved in the coalition and the individuals have been, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, dealing with the expansion of imprisonment of people and the difficulty, particularly, of getting housing for people who are um, at risk of getting imprisoned or who have been in prison. Um, just as the prisons are expanding, the availability of accommodation is getting uh, less and less. Uh, all the funds that's going to prisons uh, seems to be coming out of other budgets, like housing and support. Um, and, yeah, flat out has been, like lots of other agencies, in, in a situation where we just haven't been able to assist our, the women that we work with with getting secure long-term accommodation. Everybody in the housing sector is dealing with this. We're all, you know, having to refer people to, like, three nights in a cheap motel or a rooming house. Um, after which they're back to couch surfing or on the street if they're homeless, which many are. 
um, just because there just isn't housing available. And without housing available, people go into a cycle of return to prison mm. um, and it escalates mm. more and more. So, yeah, our idea is to bring together people who've been dealing with this um, for years and years into a coalition so that we can talk to each other and work with each other uh, to, to um, have changed the conversation at a public level away from the sort of law and order um, conversation that particularly politicians mm. use to, yeah. a, to a discussion about what's really going to address, you know, public safety and, and reducing harm in the Victorian community. Yeah, and I think that the community is slowly understanding the systemic issues which lead to prisons being used as catch-all solutions to social issues. Um, and over 40% of women in Dame Phyllis Frost are unsentenced and on remand. And in 2019 to 2020, two-thirds of women in that prison spent less than a month there. So, um, Amy, I want to head to you now. Can you speak about some of the social issues that you think the government is criminalising or just isn't addressing in the community. Um, so we'll talk about housing a bit later, but what are some of your other thoughts? Um, yeah, well, I was speaking to um, Karen about this, and basically we've come to the conclusion that um, the government are criminalising everything. So no matter what issue presents itself, um, the response is a police, police response um, in the event of family violence, with mental health crisis, drug and alcohol problems. If, if there's an issue, the police respond and the default position is to be put in jail. And then once you're put in jail, you have to prove, you know, you have to work really hard um, to get out. Um, in my experience, um, I was involved... I, I, was a, I was a victim of family violence. My husband um, strangled me, and in fighting him off, I broke his finger, uh, his little finger. Um, I was arrested. I was um, charged, remanded, denied bail, um, and was told when I faced the judge the next day that I had to prove, uh, give a compelling reason. Um, I wasn't charged with serious offence. I have to like, give a compelling reason why I should be released. I said, uh, you know, I'm 31. I have, I've never been arrested or charged for anything in my life. Um, I, you know, I had three children, two of which would go into foster care if I wasn't released. Um, my oldest son had autism um, and that wasn't compelling reasons. And so, for me, I said that if that's not compelling, if that's not a reason... Um, I don't know what is. I don't know what constitutes a compelling reason. And the other aspect, I know we've touched on housing, but because of this um, police and criminal response to everything, because what occurred in my case was a family violence incident, um, intervention orders were automatically granted, like rubber stamped by the court saying that I couldn't go near my husband or my children and therefore I couldn't go back to my house. Mm. So I had no, even if I was, even if I had made that first hurdle of compelling reasons, I didn't have a house to be bailed to. Mm. So that's um, where housing comes in is because if you are criminalised, you're out of luck if you're homeless to start with, but overnight you can lose your house because of the type of offending and then you're never going to get bail if you do not have a house to go to. 
and I, I never got bail. I got released on time served and then a community corrections order. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing um, your story, Amy, because, yeah, I think that um, there's a lot of learning that has to happen in the community to understand that intersection between criminalising people for, um, you know, intervention orders and then um, how the really aggressive um, bail laws that you, you know, you referred to, which were enacted in 2018, really make it harder for people charged with crimes to get bail um, now that the presumption of bail is like this reverse onus of proof. Um, and then, yeah, just the social issues um, to do with lack of housing, um, but also, yeah, that issue of when people are put in prison um, on remand and then having that fear of having their kids taken off them as well. Mm. Well, that yeah, that is what um, happened. That happened to me, and it happened to sort of oh, almost every single mother I spoke to during my time. Like I spent 120 days there, and I didn't know any um, women that still had custody of their children. Yeah, it's a real indictment um, on the system. And the other thing to say about that is that you know it feeds into this other issue, which is the issue of kids going into detention because there is a you know a real relationship between um, kids going into foster care or state care and the pipeline from there into juvenile detention. Um, mm. So this is creating intergenerational trauma. Uh, it's you know the more mothers that are imprisoned uh, and the more children that are um, um, taken away from their mothers, the more this intergenerational effect will happen and there'll be more children in care and more children in juvenile detention. Mm. Um, somehow or other, that, that cycle has to be broken with an approach that's not just about imprisoning people but is actually about giving people the, you know, I mean, the main concern for most of the women we talk to at Dane Phyllis Frost is their kids yeah. and mm. um, their ability to, to, to be able to parent their kids the way they want to uh, and that means secure accommodation and it means parenting support and childcare and single pa um, parent, you know, income that is able to sustain them, um, not uh, pe putting people in a cell and putting kids in foster care. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I mean, the government is also building um, a new youth prison as well um, out at Cherry Creek, so yeah, you can kind of see... Yeah, not unrelated. Yeah, they're not exactly. unrelated. I mean, the more women that you put in prison, the more kids are going to suffer, and the more kids do suffer, mm -hmm. the more trauma, uh, the more acting out, and the more violence and harm that happens to those kids and other generations down the track. Yeah. Um, and it'd be good to bring you on um, during another show maybe to just speak about the atrocities of the child protection system as well. Um, but I just wanted to ask um, a bit more about the campaign because there is an open letter calling on the Victorian government to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. So how can people sign that letter and in what other ways can people get involved in the campaign? Um, yep, so we've got um, the website um, Homes Not Prison. Um, .com.au or Google search, that's up and running. That has the uh, open letter on it, um, which you can sign on um, and you can also opt in to be involved. We have a Facebook page. Um, you know, if you're on Facebook, you can like and see updates there. Um, we're working, we've got quite a few people behind the scenes involved and we're work working on developing working groups um, 
So to, to reach uh, outreach groups, uh, people with lived experience, all sorts of things. Um, so like how, how Karen has described as a coalition, there was a whole bunch of people. Um, and so you can sign the letter on the website, but there's also, if you do want to become involved, there's lots of um, different avenues where you can become involved in the working groups that are being developed. Great. And it'd be really great to get yeah, everybody's ideas from the, all the different groups and individuals about uh, what we can do in this campaign. Some of the ideas are uh, some forums that we'll have. I mean, we've got uh, architecture students who are interested in discussing, you know, the fact that they don't want to have to design prisons. They'd rather design public housing. Um, we've got you know, nurses and midwife groups. We've got uh, a broad cross-section teachers. Uh, social workers, a lot of academics, um, particularly in the criminology area, uh, already signed on. And the idea is to take this message out to all different parts of the community and communicate with each other as a coalition to build the campaign. Great. Thank you so much um, for joining us, Amy and Karen, to speak about the Homes Not Prisons campaign this morning. Thanks for having us. And just then we heard from Amy and Karen, who are both activists involved in the Homes Not Prison campaign, who joined us to speak about the campaign to stop the expansion of Dame Phyllis Frost Prison. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377, or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. And now we're going to play a new track from Squidginini. This one is all made up. Yeah. 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 I said take me out Chase 
I'd rather just let the rain fall than I have to make the sun go shine. Said I would rather just let the rain fall. Nothing seems to work out. Nothing seems to work in my heart. Just ain't big enough to accommodate the sadness that I could So don't wake me. Just let You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And first up, we heard a track from Squidginini, All Made Up. And then just then, we heard Shoulda, Coulda from Bajara. And this morning on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, we have Samira Farah joining us in the studio. Samira is an art producer and radio presenter. She's the co-founder of Melbourne-based Black African Arts Collective Still Nomads, and she currently hosts The Score on Triple R. And she's joining us this morning to discuss a new exhibition at West Space um, called 13 Years. Welcome this morning, Samira. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us and having you in the studio, all the energy. It's really nice. (laughs) Um, so this, uh, so this morning we wanted to start by talking about, yeah, this exhibition 13 years, which opened last week at West Space and, uh, it includes archival images, audio, video recordings. I actually went to see it last night and a new video work. Um, but could you describe for the show for listeners, just give them an idea of the space and talk a bit about some of the themes and histories that you're looking at? Yeah, sure. Um, so 13 Years is done in collaboration with another radio broadcaster named Patrick Jonathan. He's based in Sydney. He currently broadcasts on, uh, Eastside Radio. He is part of a collective of black African people that began uh, Australia's longest-running African radio program called Africa Connections, which still broadcast out of Skid Row in Marrickville in Sydney. So I met him about a decade ago. Um, he came to a couple of events that I used to run, stayed in contact. He's in his 70s, really amazing um, man. But slowly over the years, I started to learn a lot more about that history that he was part of, which was um, a group of people. So he's from South Africa, born and, born and raised in Cape Town. He came to Australia in the late 70s. I was really fascinated by that. I hadn't really heard a lot of uh, black South Africans coming to Australia in that, in that time period. And then, yeah, he started to work on radio. Everything that they did, that collective of people, was around raising money and awareness for the anti-apartheid struggle, which is obviously really... Um, interesting right now. It's what's happening in the Middle East. Um, yeah, but everything they did, which was the radio show, they would raise money, they had parties, they had events. Everything was to donate money back to South African fighters. So one of the things that they did, for example, was they raised money for a safe house in Botswana where um, ANC members who were on the run from the apartheid regime could go to. 
And he has photos of that, of that house. If you saw the exhibition towards the end, there were two photos of him in South Africa, in Zimbabwe. Um, yeah, so the themes, even though they have that kind of backdrop of that period, it is really more about what it means for black African people in particular, someone like myself, where we don't know too much about our own history here, what it means to kind of use both archival images from just one person as well as looking at radio. So obviously, I'm a big radio fan. I'm a radio broadcaster. 3CR is actually where I first started. Like, Hell yeah. Yeah, seven <laughs> years ago. So I love 3CR. It has a very soft spot in my heart. I did training here. Um, and just kind of over the next eight weeks, it's an evolving exhibition. So what you saw yesterday will begin to change every week on Fridays. Um, yeah, just kind of a collaborative process of looking at how black African people here in Australia have lived, um, what they're doing. And then also really thinking about, I'm really interested in diasporas, not just black African, but other people who live here who may not. Well, I, I, I would, I'd feel safe to say that regardless of whether you're black or let's say Asian or Arab and you're born here or you've been here since you were very, very young. There is this attitude that people like us, our history kind of stops on arrival here. And looking at someone like Patrick going, oh, not only has he been here for now for like 50 years, he has his history in South Africa. That history for him never stopped. He did all kinds of stuff. Um, so, yeah, thinking about that, like against this whole multicultural assimilation nonsense that I'm not interested in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, it was really interesting just like looking at those photos and also, yeah, that relationship between like the personal arc. Like obviously this is one person's yeah. collection of photographs and, and also political posters and the activism and um, issues that they've been involved in in their life. But um, how that's able to like, yeah, talk to a broader history and like, yeah, push back in kind of against like other archives or other ways of um, archiving. Mm. And also you have audio recordings. I, I listened to a bit of a broadcast from um, that one of the Skid Row programs um, and just like listening back to radio. I wondered if you could talk a bit more. I know, yeah, obviously radio is close to your heart, but like the importance of radio in those struggles um, and in the organizing mm. that uh, Patrick was involved yeah. in. I mean, I think you would all know more than I think any station here. I mean, any station in Melbourne, that 3CR, particularly for communities that may not necessarily have the most access to mainstream media, radio is the most accessible. You know, you can do radio training quite quickly. You can broadcast in your own language, which is, you know, restraint that we have here, most restrained media, other than SBS, I think. Um, it allows people to stay connected to their communities. I know a lot of, I've met a lot of radio broadcasters here who are older African generations. And the first thing that they told me was they got on radio. Like they started here at 3CR or they started at like, let's say the Muslim radio stations or the ethnic radio stations back in Sydney. So for me, it's, I'm such a radio fan. It's very hard for me sometimes to explain the importance because I'm like, it's so obvious that I don't need to explain it. But yeah, like, where else, what, I can't think of another media platform that is as accessible mm. to people of any ethnicity, creed, religion, sex, gender, anything. Totally. And that, you, yeah, you can just hear it all the time in your home. Like it really, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think also it's, it's the most personal. Mm. When a person is driving in a car and they say, like, they're listening to you three, they feel the most connected in that moment in the way that you don't to a journalist in a print magazine. Totally. And I just also wanted to um, talk about the new, there's, there is one new video work, I believe it's new video work by um, Guled abdul Wasi that pre uh, that's presented in the exhibition called The Block. And yep. it's, um, I was wondering if you could describe the work and talk about it because it's quite specific in like the formal way that it's um, kind of panning up and down. Yeah. So there's actually 
there's two new video work. Hulet's video work and the projection on the screen is an evolving video work where each mm. week uh, the lossless radio crew are going to be adding footage from Black British Radio because uh, a lot of the members of lossless have like heritage to London, etc. Mm. But back to Hulet's work. Hulet is usually based here in Melbourne. He's currently back home in um, Ethiopia. He left a couple of months ago. The block is a video work. You've seen it. It basically yeah, pans in and out of various public housing estates in Melbourne where Hulet used to live for most of his life. Um, the story behind that is Hulet, while he was still living there with his family, would take photos. He's, he's an architect uh, graduate. He would take photos of all the faults with the estates because he felt that um, a certain government organization <laughs> Uh, wasn't fixing the problems in the his building or in any building. So he would take mm. close-up photos, he would Instagram it, and he would hashtag them and tag them repeatedly over months. Mm. In the end, I think he got some sort of like a cease and desist. And then he was like, well, F that. I'm actually going to turn this into another thing. Mm. It, it's a whole video work. So, yeah, it pans in and out um, into, I think, the Collingwood, the Richmond, and the Flemington housing estates where he used to live in some of them. Um, and the interesting thing is when you actually watch it during the daylight in the gallery, you do see the Collingwood flats behind the gallery as you pan in and out. Um, it's been interesting because I'm not from Melbourne. I'm from Sydney, and we don't have that kind of public housing, um, like those kind of buildings, right? So he, I think he really kind of wanted to remind people constantly of what it means to see them but also not see them. Totally. And also, yeah, because it's in black and white for um, listeners who haven't seen the show, yeah. and it kind of has a like reminiscent of like security footage or yes, something. Yes, it's very surveillance-like. Yeah. yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to briefly ask you, I know there's also a reading group that accompanies this exhibition, as well as Lossless Radio doing broadcasts, I think, on Friday. Yes. So could you just give listeners a little overview of those kind of um, public programs or things that you're doing um, with, with other people in the yeah, gallery? Sure. Um, there's a couple of public programs. There is the reading group that kicked off last night. It's uh, reading Sylvia Winter, who is a Jamaican essayist, critic, novelist, um, text, um, Becoming the Human. We're doing that very slowly together, so we read out loud. On Fridays, Lossless takes over their radio collective. They will broadcast um, from 12 to 6 each Friday, and there'll be a couple of live performances coming up in the next couple of weeks. And I also want to shout out um, Aminata and Rhoda, who, as part of uh, EWF on the last Saturday, are doing a BIPOC-only meditation, yoga, self-care type of um, day. So the whole space will become for that. That sounds really incredible. Thank you so much, Thank Samira, you for, having for me. joining us and talking about the show. Listeners should go check out the show um, uh, at West Space. It's at Collingwood Yards, and they're open, I think, Wednesday to Saturday. Um, go to the reading groups on Wednesday nights, and, yeah, listen, tune in if you're not in Melbourne to Lossless Radio. And now we're going to go to a track. is Cruisin' by Emily Wurramara.
Every little tea that I trickle, oh, I see it all comes to an end. Yeah, we're cruising, packing up our bags, we're moving, listening to our favorite song to you all night long. And it's night time, catch another break and unwind. I'll be there with you, with you, real soon. How is your night going? How is your world shining? Does it win? Does it how? Does it flow just for you? I won't refuse nothing And I won't abuse nothing Will I ever get the chance to know the real you? I'm cruising Packing up our bags we're moving Listen to our favorite song Another breaking unwind. I'll be there with you, with you, real soon. And that track there was "Cruising" by Emily Wurramara. And now we will be speaking to Sione Crawford, the CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, um, and they will be joining us to speak about the um, importance of the supervised and safe injecting facilities in Melbourne and the importance of peer-led approaches to harm reduction for people who inject dr- drugs. Hi, Sione. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. No problem. Great to be here. Yeah, very excited to chat to you today. Um, I guess as a bit of a start-off, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and about Harm Reduction Victoria? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> Harm Reduction Victoria is uh, what we call a, a peer-based organisation. And in, um, the peer, or peer group that we work with and that we are from uh, are people with a history of uh, illicit drug use. And um, in particular, um, you know, we... we, we we work with people who use all, all kinds of illicit drugs, um, but injecting drug use is a key part of uh, the work that we do. So we actually draw our um, workforce from from that from that community, from the community of people uh, who inject drugs. So I have lived experience of mm-hmm. of that and a lot of the issues that affect people uh, who inject as well. Mm-hmm. So it really sounds like the organisation is about ensuring that the people that support people have a lived experience and kind of bring that understanding into the space um yeah absolutely and and to advocate for our community as well as provide services yeah yeah incredible and for um listeners that might not know about it could you give us a brief um introduction on the safe and supervised um injecting facility in melbourne the north richmond community health run one yeah, sure. So um, I think it's called, well, it's called the Medically Supervised Injecting Room. And I think um, people use the acronym MSA a lot, so I might slip into using that. Yeah. Um, but it obviously started a few years ago in North Richmond. And I think it's important to know and understand that 
uh, first of all, that injecting safe, in, safe injecting facilities or drug consumption rooms are <clears throat> actually pretty common around the world, mm. or relatively common anyway. Um, they've been in place for quite some time, particularly in Europe, of course, um, and in Canada as well. And um, the Melbourne one actually, um, I think, was the second attempt in, in Melbourne yeah. to have injecting rooms. We, we tried it a little bit earlier uh, in the century. And um, I think it's also important to know that injecting rooms are usually put in places where there is already a high level of injecting drug use, particularly public injecting. And mm. usually, like the North Richmond one, they're in response to an overdose epidemic. Yeah. Uh, people really, um, you know, don't like seeing, frankly, overdoses on their street. And, and us as the community don't like experiencing them and having our, our friends die. I've personally had mm. Uh, a number of pe- people that I know <clears throat> die from overdose. Mm. It's unfortunately really common, and I think it's important to know that the injecting room is set up specifically to stop uh, overdose, and it's done yeah. that uh, really, really well in North Richmond. But it also links people into um, to, to services as well. Mm. It, it really sounds like the priority is protecting and supporting community in the Richmond area. And since the introduction of this facility, have there been any changes to overdose patterns or management um, in the area? Excuse me. Yeah, so both anecdotally uh, from the community and from, um, when I say the community, I'm I'm, I'm speaking them pretty broadly. Mm. Uh, I know there are a number of community members who are opposed to the room and Mm. um, that's their, their right, but... From our perspective, from our community, we certainly see that um, overdoses have uh, public overdoses have decreased, and um, there is uh, the the room is also very proud of the number of people that it's um, brought into drug treatment as well. Mm. Uh, I believe there'd be no overdoses on site, wow. that's for sure. Uh, no, over, sorry, no fatal overdoses on site, um, and uh, the, the fatal overdoses in the area have been measurably decreased as well mm-hmm. it's a room no service is going to completely eliminate any of the issues that it's put in place to yeah. um, to, to help deal with so you know there are a number of restrictions on people who can and can't enter the service for instance mm-hmm. uh, those people are not going to magically stop injecting drugs in the area but just because they're not allowed to use the injecting room for instance yeah. um, and there are uh, there are numerous reasons why people might end up injecting in public still. So, of course, that's still going to happen and there's still going to be overdoses in public. But the uh, the review panel who reviewed the uh, injecting room and handed down their report last year, yeah. you know, there's, it's undeniably that there's a, 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 a lessening trend line of overdoses in the area and that ultimately what it was set up to, to do. It wasn't mm. really set up to manage the amenity of the area. No, for sure, for sure. And also, just kind of leading on from that, could you also tell us a bit more about the role of peer support in relation to encouraging safer injecting practices and the use of supervised injecting facilities? Yes, sure. So peer education and peer support, I mean, our organisation, Harm Reduction Victoria, for instance, was actually funded back in 1987, Mm. and uh, that was in response to the HIV epidemic. Yeah. And it was it was because our community, or at, at that time in particular, um, it was uh, the community was very hidden, and uh, peer education was brought in because uh, basically 
that's how people who engage in illicit activities tend to learn is actually from their from other people. You know, mm. anyone who takes any kind of drug generally will ask the person that they're using it with or the person they're buying it from or getting mm. it with, you know, do you know about this? Do you know about this? Do you know how strong it is? All that sort of stuff. I think a lot of people who have experience with all sorts of drugs um, understand that and injecting drug users are no different. And so peer education really is just built to leverage that. Mm. But as it as peer support and peer education has um, uh, developed over time, um, it's also utilised more and more by services. And so yeah. um, certainly in uh, North Richmond, the uh, peer workers that have been involved um, in, in the injecting, their main role was, I believe, outreach in particular and engaging people into using the service. So mm. to do the very things we were talking about before, yeah. let people know that the injecting room exists and that, um, you know, that ideally uh, they won't get arrested um, for yeah. being in there and that um, and, and that the staff there have got their best interests at heart. Oh, sure. And, yeah, so peer support's really about, well, there's a lot, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it can do is engage people and uh, let them share, share your own, ex- sh- really break down barriers by um Briefly sharing your own experience, yeah. and showing people that you yeah. understand where they are where they are coming from. Yeah, th- yeah. that's that's really helpful for <clears throat> listeners to know about Sioni. Um, thank you so much um, for joining us today to talk about that yeah, and sure. give a bit of a brief introduction. Um, I, I've certainly learnt quite a bit as well. So, um, yeah, thank you again. No worries. Thank you. My pleasure. And um, that was a conversation that we just had with Sione Crawford, CEO of Harm Reduction Victoria, um, who spoke about the importance of supervised safe injecting facilities in Melbourne. And that's about all we have time for on today's show. So thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for Lost in Science. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.